That's good. Hey, I'm going to open this, uh, open this time with prayer. If you pray with me. Our Father, I thank you again for this moment. I thank you for these people. I thank you for this, this, uh, just this time to hear the gospel in, in so many ways, through the singing, through the preaching of your word, through serving one another, through taking of communion. Everything that we do, Lord, is meant to proclaim the gospel and help us to remember it. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be helping us to remember uh, this morning. Open our hearts uh, so that we would know your great love for us. And Lord, just say what you once said to each heart. Let the words uh, this morning be your words. Let them land on each heart as you'd have them. And may everything that we do here glorify you and honor you. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. As many of you know, uh, the la- about for about three months this summer, uh, me and my family were on uh, a sabbatical. And at the beginning of that sabbatical, pretty close to the beginning, we decided to take a road trip, about a two-and-a-half to three-week road trip. And if you don't know me, if you don't know our family, it's really nice to meet you. We should meet in person. But I have three little kids, uh, four, five, and six years old. Right? And so we decided to take this road trip, um, and they... We didn't have a minivan this summer. We just had like a car with the back seat. Put them all three in the back seat. It was awesome. But anyways, we started our trip in Myrtle Beach. We spent a little bit of time there. Then we made our way over to the mountains. We went to Tweetsie Railroad because Thomas, the tank engine, was there. And we rode him, which is amazing. Um, then we went to the Biltmore House. Not for me. Not for my kids. They little boring. If you, Whatever. It was a big house. And then we drove up through Kentucky, and we went to Noah's Ark, which is just sitting out in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky. So that was pretty, that was interesting. It was pretty neat. Kids love that. Then we went to Indianapolis to the Children's Museum. It's like the world's largest children's museum. The most exhausting day of my entire trip. Anyways, we did all those things before we ever made it to Milwaukee, which is where we were heading because Claire's sister and her family live there, and we get to Milwaukee, kind of close to dinner time. We go in, stretch our legs for a little bit, and then we decide that we're going to go to this food truck festival for dinner, which sounds awesome, right? It wasn't. I think we ended up going somewhere else, but that's not the point of the story. We went to a food truck festival for dinner, and so we're heading out the door, and I say to my brother-in-law, look, we'll just follow you since you obviously know the way. That's the thing to do. Now, if you have little kids, you know that sometimes uh, buckling the seatbelts can take some time, right? So we get in the car, and we've been in the car for a while, right? But we get back in the car, two of my kids get buckled, and one of them is taking their sweet time, and uh, we're just sitting there waiting. It's my littlest one, Ansley. She's taking her time. And I kind of offhandedly say, well, I hope that they don't leave us, right? Because we're going to follow my brother-in-law. And I didn't mean anything by it. I was just kind of joking, but she's four. I don't know why I think that's humorous. But all of a sudden, when I said that, I hope that they don't leave us, my oldest daughter, Grace Noel, she's like, I mean, something clicked in her when I said that, and she got terrified, right? She got really, really worried. Uh, From then on, the rest of the trip, she was worried, and then all the other kids became worried. Like, every time we got in the car, they were scared that I didn't know the way. 
And they'd be asking me if I knew how to get there or if I could see whoever I was following or if I had my map on, if it was working, right? And I kept telling them, I'm like, guys, I've gotten you over 1,500 miles, right? And that's just on this trip so far. Before that, I've gotten you thousands more on other trips. And every time, I just kept, you know, come on, guys, I've gotten you this far. Would you just trust me? But they just couldn't. Even though almost every leg of the trip, like I said, we had done something really cool all along the way, right? We'd always made it. We'd always had a cool experience. But regardless, they stopped thinking about what was coming on the trip and only about what they feared could happen, getting lost. So they spent a lot of time being worried instead of being expectant. This isn't really a very serious thing, obviously. I mean, my kids, my kids are great road trippers. We had an excellent trip. We had a blast together. It's not that big of a deal. But it serves to illustrate one of the things that God really seemed to kind of press in on me and on my heart this summer during the sabbatical. And that is that I haven't myself been spending much of my time being truly expectant either. In fact, I've spent a good bit of my time and energy just only expecting disappointment, only expecting loss, even though God has been so, so good to me over and over and over and over again. And that expectation of disappointment, that expectation of loss had let in a lot of cynicism in my own heart. Like I've been putting up my guard. I've expected like the least instead of expecting the most, and my hopes had honestly become pretty low. I'd been setting my hopes pretty low. Just be honest with you, like at a head level, I know like God can do anything and that one day all his promises are going to come true. But like at a heart level, I'd come to practically believe that he didn't have great plans for me and that he probably wasn't going to do anything that great in my lifetime. I wouldn't have acknowledged that. That's not what I believe in my head, but in my heart, practically, I think that's what was going on. How about you? What do you expect the future to hold, really? Is God going to do great things in your life? Is God going to do great things in your family? Is God going to do great things in this church and in this city and in this world? Like, How good is he, really? How able is he? How big is the good news of Jesus Christ to you? And how does it practically play out in your life? How does your belief practically play out in your life? Are you full of joy and hope? Or if we're honest, are you worried or cynical or filled with disbelief? In Habakkuk 1.5, one of the minor prophets, the beginning of the book starts with the prophet uh, making a complaint to God, basically asking how long are his people going to have to continue to endure what is a very dark season in their, in their life. And God responds to Habakkuk in, in chapter 1, verse 5, saying this. He says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And then God, through the rest of it, kind of lets Habakkuk in on what the future actually holds. Most immediately, he tells him his plans to deliver his people from the Chaldeans who have oppressed them. 
But he also is really letting Habakkuk in on an even bigger picture of how God himself is going to come out for people into battle for our ultimate salvation and that he's going to win. And amazingly, over time, all these things really do come to pass. God delivers on his immediate promises to Habakkuk. He delivers his people from the Chaldeans. And then we know, in the person of Jesus Christ, God came out to battle for our ultimate salvation. And he defeated death on our behalf. But then, like after Christ came, after Christ died and was buried and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, after all of that, in Acts chapter 13, verse 41, Paul stands up in a synagogue full of religious people and he quotes this verse from Habakkuk. And this is what he says. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and, and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. You know, Paul quotes this verse knowing what we just talked about. He knows that what God meant in the immediate context of Habakkuk is already finished. And he also knows that even the work of God's salvation in and through the work of Jesus Christ, that's been done. But he still grabs the truth from this passage that is enduring. And he applies it on this side. That's on our side of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that truth is that God is still doing a work that we would not believe if we were told. God is still doing a work in our day we wouldn't believe it if we were told. And Paul says basically that in our cynicism and in our hopelessness and in our worry, we could become the scoffers that miss the bigger picture of the gospel. Like we could spend this whole ride that we are on being worried and guarded instead of expectant and hopeful, and we would be missing out big time. So a question is, do we really believe that God is doing a work in our day that we wouldn't believe if told? Do we believe that about him? Or do we believe that the gospel is kind of over? That it's just good news that happened 2,000 years ago. And yes, it was big and it was very good news and it's been really good news for my life. But it's still over. It's still old news. It's still finished. It still happened a long time ago. And there's nothing really great that's going to happen in our day unless we happen to be alive when Jesus comes back. Listen, I, I, think, that we, I think we often get stuck in the narrative of the gospel. We get stuck in the, the fall and redemption parts of that narrative. After all, that's a, that's a major part of our story. That's a major part of our experience. We are fallen and full of sin. And only by the person and work of Christ have we been redeemed and reconciled and called righteous. Yet the gospel is bigger still than that. The gospel's bigger. And that's what I want us to really digest this morning. That's what I want us to digest over the next month. As we kind of make our way through this series, I'm calling All Things New. It's really a series that's meant to help us to like look 
up and look forward together, to have common vision, common purpose, common mission, all that kind of stuff. But maybe the thing I want us to walk away from with the most out of this is that the gospel is bigger still. Because the good news includes the truth that we were fallen and that through Christ's death and resurrection we have been redeemed. But it also includes the narrative of creation and the narrative of restoration. So as we see in the narrative of creation, the good news includes the fact that we were created with intrinsic value and with purpose from the very beginning of this whole story, from creation. And the biblical narrative of restoration or recreation includes the good news that his rede- as redeemed children of God, we're able to live into our God-given value and our God-given purpose. And it includes an invitation for us to join in the work with our King and our Lord and Savior here and now and into eternity. And that work is where he is restoring and recreating and making all things new. God is saturating. He is saturating the world with his glory. He is restoring. He is recreating. He is making all things new. Back in the Habakkuk, God let the prophet in on what he was doing immediately. He also pointed to the cross where God would go to battle to redeem and to deliver his people. But God also pointed to creation and restoration. Habakkuk 2.14 says this. It says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the world will be restored to its created purpose. It will be saturated with the glory of God and it will glorify God. That's what it was created to do and it will be restored to do that. The whole narrative of the gospel includes this. It includes creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. And the bigger gospel isn't, it's not over, it's ongoing. And God is at work in our day. He's at work in us and among us and through us. And I believe he's, doing, he's, he's at work in ways that we wouldn't believe if we were told. But, as Paul warns in Acts chapter 13 to this congregation of scoffers that he's talking to, scoffers might miss it. When I was a kid, I really loved Christmas morning. Right, like all the presents just stacked up, ready for me to tear into. Like I know I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to know that Christmas isn't about the presents. Give me a break, I was a kid, you know, I get it now, right? But I would lay awake in my bed all night on Christmas Eve, just so excited, unable to sleep, just waiting to get out there and open those presents to see if I got the things that I had really hoped for. But also... I grew up in a family that liked to play the jokes, okay? And as I got a little older, the pranks that we did started happening on Christmas Day. And I started to get some gag gifts on Christmas Day, right? Like several were wrapped up to make the... I got several gag gifts that were, they were wrapped up to make me think they were something I really wanted. Like a computer or a video game console or something else like that, whatever kids want. And then I would open them up only to find like bricks and... Uh, <laughs> like packing material and baby toys and stuff like that, just a bunch of nonsense. But honestly, over the years, like, I stopped losing sleep on Christmas Eve. 
right? I lost the sense of expectancy, the sense of hope. And instead, I put up my guard so that I wouldn't end up disappointed. I stopped looking at the boxes, at their sizes and shapes, trying to guess what they might be or if it was what I was really hoping for. And on Christmas morning, I started opening presents differently. I didn't tear them open like a crazy man, like I was excited. I took my time. I was careful with it. I didn't let on that I was excited. That way, if there was a joke in the box, I wouldn't look foolish. One of the passages that I meditated on a lot this summer was Psalm 33. In verse 5, it says this. It says, he loves righteousness and justice. And catch this. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. But then at the end of the chapter, in verse 22, the psalmist says, Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. And early in the summer, this struck me as odd, because in verse 5, he declares that the earth is full of God's steadfast love, that his love is evident all around me, that his love is evident all around us. And then at the end, he prays that the Lord would let his love be upon him. And he kind of ends with this like determined hopefulness. And I just couldn't, I wasn't quite getting it. But for several reasons, I needed to be made aware and pointed to the evidence of God's great love for me this summer. For one thing, I needed his perfect love to cast out fears. I needed his perfect love to cast out some insecurities that had crept into my heart. And as I meditated on this passage in Psalm 33, I realized that I needed to look up. I needed to lift up my head, right? Like his love is evident all around me, but I needed his help to raise my head and see it. Like too often I was walking with my my head sort of down, defeated, cynical, not having my hopes set high. And I, like the psalmist, needed to be confronted by the steadfast love of God. It was evident all around me, but I needed to be confronted by the steadfast love of God. And God was doing a work on me this summer, transforming my heart through this passage, moving me from cynical and guarded to hopeful. And like me in some way, I think that scoffers miss the good news of God's love because they keep their heads down. They're no longer willing to excitedly and expectantly open the Christmas gift for fear of the disappointment and fear of that exposed foolish feeling that you get when you've been let down. It takes a hopeful heart to look up and look for a miracle. But we scoffers, we won't be duped, right? We can't take that risk. That means we can't hope. Listen, this is what I want for us as a church. I want us to lift our heads and hope. And look for a miracle of God's love that's all around us. I want us to be a church that is expectant. We need to let the whole gospel confront our cynicism with hopefulness that's rooted in God's promises and God's proven faithfulness. You know, there's a culture of cynicism in our country, I think. And there's a culture of cynicism in our city, maybe even more so in our neighborhood of downtown. And maybe it stems from years of, in Augusta, maybe it stems from years of being let down by our local government. 
And I know that it has roots in the decades upon decades upon decades of racism and hate that's been fostered in this place. I think there's more reasons too, but the point is that we live in a culture where people don't dare to hope. And they scoff at the people who do. We don't dare to hope, and then we scoff at the people who do hope. And you know what? Our culture in the church, even our culture in this church, is often indistinguishable from that of the world around us. Like, we can be honest about that. That's a failure. We can be honest about it, that even in this church, sometimes our culture is indistinguishable of that of the world around us. Because there's a temptation to, like, gather with the church, to gather with you folks, to worship God and to pray and to praise Him with our guard up. We, we have a tendency to give in to that temptation, to gather with the church, to worship God, and we do it with our guard up. I felt it here. But indulge me. Dare to dream for a minute. Dare to dream for a week or just a month as we go through this series. What if we were a people at Redemption Church who lived from a hopefulness that's rooted in Christ? What if we were willing to look foolish in our hopefulness? Because we know that our God is still doing amazing things in the world and that we've been invited into his work of restoration. Could this church become a wellspring of hope in our city and in our community? Why would we want to stay cynical? Like, why do we want to stay guarded? Why are we so afraid of being let down? Romans 8.28 says, that our God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Do you know what that means? That means that even those things that disappoint us or let us down will be turned into blessing. Like we have reason to hope beyond hope. It's not that we're never going to be let down in this world, right? It's that even the letdowns will be turned into victories because God is still doing his work. So what if we did? What if, we lift, what if we let God lift up our heads, lift up the head of this family called Redemption Church? What if we determined to walk together in hopefulness and expectation, convinced that God is still doing a work that, is, that we wouldn't believe if he told us? We're going to get into this a bit more over the coming weeks, but this morning, I just want to leave you with reason to hope a reason to forsake cynicism, a reason to let down your guard, and a reason to submit to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ and to let him transform your heart. And the gospel is our reason. The whole gospel is our reason. The enduring good news that our God has saved, is saving, and will save, that he is making all things new. So I'm going to share a few scriptures with you. Listen to this in Psalm 139, 13, and 14. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Listen, the creation part of the gospel narrative 
It bears a lot of truth. It has a lot of good news, like big picture, God is good. He makes all things good, and he's glorious, and he's worthy of the worship from all the things that he's made. But in this passage, this passage makes the good news of creation personal, and it inspires me to hope. I heard Ray Ortland, a pastor, Ray Ortland say that God is not too great to notice you. He's too great to overlook you. That's incredibly comforting. You and I are not overlooked. We were made with great care for a purpose, and we are valuable, and we are loved by the creator of the entire universe. So if you're hopeless because you feel like you have no purpose, the creation part of this narrative would say, think again. God made you on purpose and for purpose with love and with care. And then Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this. It's quoted from our confession of, our corporate confession of sin this morning in the Psalms. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, the fall part of the gospel narrative says that what God made to be lovely and valuable, that's you and me, we in our sin and betrayal have made it worthless. This isn't good news. This is sad news. But it's a reality that we need to to hear and we have to reckon with, right? Because if we don't believe that we're wrecked, we won't believe that we need a hero. We won't even be aware that we need somebody to hope in. And so we have to reckon with it. We, we have to recognize that we are all guilty, but we're not to wallow in it. We're not to wallow in our failure. The good news of redemption, the next part of the narrative, washes us clean and reconciles us to God and to each other. Check this out, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us his ministry of reconciliation. This is redemption. This is what we who are in Christ Jesus have experienced and are still experiencing. Like, don't miss that this is, it's not just that he wiped away our sins and he's punched a ticket for us to go to heaven in the afterlife. We are reconciled with God and to our created purposes in the present and into eternity to make him known to others and to glorify God. So if you find yourself struggling with hope, struggling to hope, look up. See the evidence of his steadfast love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we who were dead in our trespasses and in our sins have been made alive with Christ. We say we believe that. So lift up your head and dare to hope. The Lord's provided a miracle in your life, and I'd encourage us to look for more. He's still making all things new. And lastly, there's this verse in Revelation 21, 3 through 5. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is restoration. This is recreation. He's making all things new. He is still doing his work. And it's bigger and better than you and I could ever dream of or imagine. Look, I know from this passage alone that the new world that God is bringing into reality has no tears, has no death, has no mourning, has no pain. The thirsty will be quenched. There won't be cynicism there. There will only be fulfilled hopes. There won't be devastating natural disasters, and there won't be horrific news of mass murder and terrorism. We won't do that to each other there. We won't break each other down there. We won't even be, we won't even have idols vying for our attention in heaven. We'll be forever living in the embrace of our Father who created us, who formed us, who wove us together in our mother's womb. And I know that that world is coming here. And that we've been invited into the work of bringing it to bear. That's part of the good news. We've been invited into the work of bringing it to bear by living from and being personally transformed by the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus and by making him known to our neighbor, to our city, and to our world. And I just think that that world is better than the world we live in today. And this is a promise that it's coming. I want to live in it. And I want the world that we live in tomorrow to be more restored than the world we live in today. I want the city that we live in tomorrow to be more restored than the city that we live in today. And I want it to be newer each and every day after that. That's why I'm praying that God would just lift our heads in hopefulness at Redemption Church so that we can see his steadfast love that is all around us and that we would be renewed and transformed so that we could become catalysts for his salvation to start springing up from the ground and his work of reconciliation, his work of restoration and recreation to be in full bloom in Augusta, which is nicknamed the Garden City. I've got my hopes set high. I fully believe that Redemption Church could be known in this city as a people who are making the real Jesus known by being honest about our failures, loving the way that he loves, serving the city for the good of all, and inviting everybody in to the family of God. I'm expectant, I'm hopeful, and I'm excited about the future, and I'm letting letting down my guard and letting you know about it. Aren't you excited? Aren't you hopeful? After he's proven who he is and he's done all the things that he said he would do and the promises that still lay before us and the invitation for us to do it with him, aren't you hopeful? I mean, that's the God we've come to worship, right? That's what we're doing here this morning. We're not, please don't, let's not do this out of duty out of something we're just supposed to do. What are we doing here? We've come to worship 
God, and he's supposed to be a God who's doing a work in our day that we wouldn't believe if we were told. So I'm praying that he gives us hopeful hearts that look for the miracle of his love and his faithfulness all around us. May you let the whole gospel confront you this morning in your own cynicism, in your own disbelief, in your own hopelessness. And may you find a hopefulness that's rooted in God's proven steadfast love, God's proven faithfulness, and God's promise restoration. We're going to move into a time of response like we do each week at Redemption Church. And it's a time for you to reflect on this, maybe a time to even start asking God to deal with the disbelief and cynicism and disappointment and low expectations and no hope in your life. Let him confront your heart with who he really is. We're going to go through this time in a few ways. The band will come. They're going to lead us in a time of worship through singing together. That's a time for you to stand and to praise God. It's a time for you to reflect where you are. You can do whichever is most comfortable and what, what, may, what makes sense for you. It's also a time where we take up our tithes and offerings as we worship God with what he's given us um, by giving it back to him. There's a basket in the back. If you're a member of Redemption Church, you can give and worship there in the back. And then each week, we come and we take communion together. And so you can come down one of these side aisles here, and you can take the bread, and you can dip it in the wine or the juice. The bread representing his body, which was given for us, the wine and the juice representative of his blood, which was shed for us. And when we come, we're doing this as a family to remember the gospel, to remember that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's done a great work, that he's doing a great work, and that there's a great work that he's still going to do. So we remember that together and we proclaim it to one another. If you're a member of Redemption, if, I mean, if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of Redemption Church or not, we invite you to come and take with us. If you can say that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then come and take with us. I'm going to pray for us. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your, your good news of Jesus, who's reconciled us to our created purpose, who's reconciled us to the, our God-given value, who's reconciled us to you, and who's reconciled us with all of creation, with, our, with all of humanity. Lord, you are making all things new, and you're using us to do it, too. Lord, I just pray that you would let that sink into us. Like, let us realize your great love for us. Let us know your steadfast love that is, that is evident all around us. Let us in on that. Open our hearts to see your great love so we can put our guard down, so we can know that we have no reason to be afraid, that we have no reason to worry about disappointment because you even take disappointments and make victories. You're making all things new, and we're a part of it, and we're your children. Lord, lead us into hopefulness. Lead us into expectancy. Lead us to be a church that's looking for miracles from you because we know you're still at work. I pray that for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.